Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. I hope you are enjoying your summer. I am recording this from the Corinthian Gulf during a heat wave, which doesn't seem to affect the cicadas. The house here literally has no address, uh, yet (laughs) Zoom calls can still reach me for meetings. Today we're going to be talking about holy relics, especially the true cross. Not so much from a theological standpoint or the ways in which they were worshipped or incorporated into Christian worship, but rather as extremely valuable objects that were coveted, gifted, transported, stolen, abducted, returned, and generally trafficked. This is a very medieval phenomenon, but it has some very interesting modern analogs. So I want you to think about the peculiar place that the following classes of objects have in the modern economy. And these are high art, classical antiquities, and celebrity paraphernalia. All of these objects are considered extremely valuable, or or, or can be. I mean, they have uh, specimens that are regarded as so valuable as to be priceless. In other words, that their value doesn't correspond to um, the material from which they are made necessarily from their utility. They usually have no purpose, um, no practical use, um, or even the effort of craftsmanship that went into the making of them. Now, in some cases, they can be made of expensive materials or be the product of extraordinary skill and craftsmanship, but that's not necessary. Their value is something much more ineffable, um, you know, related to things like the the, the past or a venerated figure um, or a quasi-mystical aura that imparts prestige to elite individuals and nations. These objects are scarce. Indeed, they are all the more valuable if they are unique. In many cases, there is an exciting narrative about their discovery. Um, Certainly, this is the case for archaeological artifacts, but also, you know, celebrity paraphernalia is sometimes discovered after having been lost or kept in a cupboard for decades or centuries or Uh, The same is true about art, especially if some painting had been lost and is then found again and so forth. They are objects for which authenticity and authentication is paramount. Um, And because of this, there are huge para-industries of producing forgeries that swirl around all of these objects. They are owned or controlled by elites. Indeed, their very social function is to display elite status and claim prestige or social power, you know, whether this is for a person or institution or a country. And yet, at the same time, they're understood to be of relevance to all humanity, that is, as as the relevant elites understand humanity. And they are expected to draw large crowds, which is in itself a form of power, Um, and also can be monetized, so they are financial assets as well. Well, we have basically described some of the essential elements of the medieval culture of relics, which was in many ways the genealogical antecedent uh, of the market for high art and classical antiquities and celebrity paraphernalia today. My guest today is Lynn Jones, professor of art history at Florida State University. She is a specialist not only in Byzantine art, but the art uh, of the Caucasus regions of Georgia and Armenia, but also the reception of some Byzantine art in the medieval West. Um, So her research areas encompass all of those regions and the complex interactions between them. More on that in a moment. I had always intended to invite Lynn to the podcast, but I did so immediately when we found ourselves together uh, presenting to the students um, that uh, Dumbart Noakes had uh, organized for a teaching day um, last spring. Um, and this had in part to do with you know, who owns the past and the identity of the past and so forth. And she spoke very powerfully 
uh, about the different complete, competing claims over ownership of the past, especially in connection with Hagia Sophia. And Lynn, in a fairly impassioned speech, laid out all of the, the merits, but also the limitations of the different kinds of claims uh, to the monument, be they national, international, scholarly, architectural, and so forth, um, and that showing that, well, you know, none of them has an, an absolute claim, and that they must all somehow be tempered uh, by each other, or at least that's how I took it. Um, and what we'll be discussing in the episode today is very related to that theme in the sense that when relics travel, they sort of be, they're detached from one context and placed within another and are naturalized there. Um, and the techniques by which that happens are also quite fascinating. So specifically, we'll be talking about how the fragments of a relic, for the most part the true cross, uh, were disseminated, um, had already been disseminated by the fourth century when we first begin to hear of them, um, and what kinds of you know, processes existed for their dissemination in the centuries after that. We'll be focusing especially on one story, which um, involves a Merovingian queen and abbess, Radigund, um, who managed to obtain a fragment of the true cross from Constantinople. And as Lynn tells the story, and I'll, I'm, I'm asking her questions along the way, we explore um, a whole range of the issues involved in the um, invention. This is the technical term. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean fabrication. It means the finding and the authentication. Um, and the showcasing and requesting and, and receiving and giving and traveling um, of relics such as that of the cross. Um, so, you know, it, it's a story, but we explore all of these different issues along the way. Um, I had great fun, you know, recording this conversation. Uh, we had many, many other things to discuss, but it turned out that this topic in itself uh, was sufficient for an episode. We reached down to the early 7th century and a little bit beyond uh, to the Fourth Crusade when Constantinople was plundered and its great collection of relics, one of the greatest collections of relics in the Christian world, was broken up and dispersed uh, among the various centers of power in Western Europe. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this as much um, as well. Uh, Lynn tells a great story. Uh, thank you also to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. Uh, so without any further delay, here's my conversation with Lynn Jones. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start with some background. We're going to be talking about relics and in particular the True Cross today and what it was good for. <laughs> what can you use the True Cross to do? Uh, but first, a little bit of background. Can you tell us when the cross enters, you know, Roman and medieval history? So, you know, after the New Testament, of course. And why are there bits of it in Constantinople and bits of it in Jerusalem? And, you know, where is the True Cross? In 384, we have the Bishop of Jerusalem, Cyril, stating that the whole earth is full of relics of the true cross. So from the Edict of Milan in 312, with which the Roman Emperor Constantine I legalizes Christianity, to the very short period of 384, if we are to believe Cyril of Jerusalem, we have the development of enough relics of the true cross to, as he puts it, rather exasperate, in, in exasperation, to cover, to blanket the entire globe. Um, I'm sure this is hyperbole, but there are an immense number of them, almost from the beginning. And one of the questions is, when is the beginning? So according to legend, Helena, mother of Constantine I, discovered the relic of the true cross, that is the wood of the crucifixion, the wood upon which Christ was crucified in Jerusalem. The date that she did this is not certain because this account was not written down until some 60 years after her death. Contemporary writers, most notably Eusebius, the Bishop of Caesarea, who was in Jerusalem with Helena, doesn't mention it. Yeah. So it's a real problem uh, as to 
when it was invented, if we use the term for when relics are discovered. And I take the approach of writing and researching as one of the Christian faithful. So in this particular um, inquiry, I am writing and researching as a member of, of the, the Christian uh, minority at this time. What do you mean by that, that you're researching as a member of the Christian minority? Well, when I, when I write on Armenian topics, I approach the textual evidence as if I am a member of the Armenian religion. When I write on various aspects of the Muslim caliphs, I write as if I am a member of the Muslim faithful. I, I think I think it helps to put yourself back into the time period and put yourself into the mind space of what these meant. Um, art historians in particular are concerned with respo responsible recontextualizing of objects. And as we will see today, the difficulty with relics of the true cross is that almost every one of the ones we're going to talk about today no longer exist. So that all of the tales about them have to be reconstructed through textual history. Right, so we're approaching this material from within the mindset of the people who are writing about it and to whom this material matters. Um, and, you know, they, 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 you know, write stories about it. And in fact, as we'll see, conduct diplomacy, uh, sometimes based on the existence and traffic of these relics. So the first case that we're gonna talk about is in the sixth century, but it was my understanding that the, let's say the canonical true cross remained in Jerusalem until the seventh century wars after which it was taken to Constantinople. So how is it that in the sixth century, an abbess from Gaul basically petitions Constantinople for a fragment of the true cross? Or is this just part of that, you know, what Cyril mentioned that there are just parts of this everywhere and we don't know exactly how it got to Constantinople? Well, according to um, several accounts, um, the historian Socrates and Rufinus, um, working in Constantinople and in Italy, respectively, both write around the same time in the 360s, that when Helena discovered this relic, that she sent, that she also discovered the nails of the cross, mm -hmm. the nails that were used uh, at the crucifixion. So she sends the nails and a part of the cross to Constantinople for her son to help him in his military victories. And the nails are to go into the bridle of his horse. Right, <laughs> right which would later not be considered a very respectful use. Uh, but th there was this alternate tradition that they, the nails were the the rays or the spokes coming out of the statue of Constantine in his forum. Uh, so because that was a solar statue and it had those rays, like the Statue of Liberty, right? It has the seven sure, rays coming sure. out. That those were actually nails from the uh, from the cross. And uh, wait, didn't um, according to that same story, didn't he put the fragment of the true cross that Helena sent him inside the statue? The, there are multiple accounts, and none say that they are inside the statue. Where they may have been intended was for his burial place on the Million, on what is today the burnt column. Uh, but he winds up being buried in the Church of the Holy Apostles. So we sort of lose track right. of what Constantine actually intended, what people said Constantine intended, and then what actually happened to them. But what we do know is that fairly early on, there is an explanation for Relic of the Cross being in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. That is the church that Constantine founded 
that marked the place where the faithful believed was both Christ's tomb and the site of his crucifixion. So we have a relic of the cross there. And then we have relic of the cross that was sent to Byzantium, to Constantinople. Right. Okay, so let's fast forward to the 6th century where we have an emperor, Justin II in this case, who apparently has access to a portion of the true cross and is apparently willing to part with some of it. Um, and so we have some, a story here of Radigund of Poitiers. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about who she is and how she came to acquire a part of the Constantinopolitan uh, part of the true cross? Well, it is my my great hope that someone in your massive podcast audience <laughs> will hear this who is associated with Hollywood in some part, and we will get Radigund on the big screen because her life story is amazing. She was a Thuringian princess, so... In the sixth century, we have the rise of the kings of the Franks. These are the Merovingian rulers. But just before they take control, we still have the Thuringians, who are Germanic tribes, and they are subject to Merovingian raids in which people are taken as prisoners, uh, particularly royal people. So Radigund and her brother were taken as loot, if you will, in one of these raids by one of the Merovingian princes when she was apparently small, um, under 10. And she was then raised at the court of the king of the Franks, um, Clothar. And when she became of age, he forced her to marry him. But she was a devout Christian. He was not. And according to all of the legends, she was so devout that she preferred to dedicate herself to her heavenly Lord rather than to her earthly Lord. Mm -hmm. And we have an illuminated manuscript that is one um, with images that dates not too long, maybe five years or so after her death, that shows her um, in the marriage chamber with her husband, Clothar is lying on the bed looking put out, and she is under the bed praying devoutly. <laughs> okay, so this was a well-known couple. And to the point where uh, she kept running away, he kept bringing her back. And perhaps most important, there was no offspring. Um, the reason for that is, of course, lost to history. But as the tales tell it, it is because the marriage was not consummated due to her piety. So she runs off. The last time she runs off, he pretty much allows her to run off. And she begins to stay at various monasteries and nunneries in Gaul. And eventually she talks a bishop in the area of Poitiers in France uh, to uh, anoint her as an abbess. So she becomes a religious. And this causes all kinds of problems with Clothar, who doesn't mind having an absent wife, but absolutely does mind having a wife that is now married to the church. Mm. Um, it is an assault on his manhood, yet one more assault on his manhood. Um, and according to the legend, which I'm sure is a legend, um, Radigan steps up and accuses the bishop of being more afraid of, of earthly powers than of heavenly and claims that he will be damned if he does not anoint her. Um, so she becomes abbess and uh, begins to gather um, support in Poitiers. Yeah, this is so this is a medieval tale of teenage rebellion, right, where everything <laughs> is inverted, right? So you, you refuse to have sex and you run off to a monastery. <laughs> I'm 
true. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yes. Um, But it was about the only way that women could rebel at this time. Um, You essentially lock yourself up. So, you know, she, she did that. And the rebellion did not stop there by any means. Yeah. So at some point, she really wanted to acquire a relic of the cross. So how does she go about doing that? Well, she starts with getting a nunnery. And the nunnery then she stocks because she is still a queen, right? Uh, She has this dual heritage. She is a Thuringian princess and a Merovingian queen. She didn't run away and lose her title. Um, So she is an aristocratic um, force of nature. And she gets a nunnery um, that is attached to a monastery, and she begins to stock it with the daughters of other Moringian kings, um, because it's not primogenitor. So there are a lot of Moringian rulers who have a lot of daughters, and they want to keep them safe until they can marry them off. So they stock them into Radigan's um, nunnery. So we have an extremely prestigious place. And she begins, Radigan begins to collect relics of all kinds. And in the medieval times, you have almost a hierarchy of relics. You have oil that touched something or someone. You have cloth that was laid on a holy place or touched by a holy person. You have dirt uh, from a holy site, rocks from a holy site. You then have bones and teeth of holy people. And this kind of goes up the ladder, uh, so to speak, until you come to Christ. And the difficulty in talking about relics in Christ is that he, of course, is resurrected. And this leaves no bodily relics. So this means that the cross, the crucifix that was imbued with his blood is the closest thing to a bodily relic of Christ. So it becomes the premier Christian relic, the most prestigious, the most powerful, and the most sacred, of course. You can look at this in terms of power or piety or both. Right. So in a sense, she's kind of running a finishing school for Merovingian princesses and wants it to be very prestigious in other ways as well, right? Not just in terms of social patronage. It wants She wants to have the, the highest, you know, status relics you can get. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, yeah, anything that's come into contact with the body of Christ is the, you know, the best you can get. And so she wants to, a part of the true cross. So how does she go about getting it? Well, it's, it's interesting. It was very interesting for me to really pull these legends apart. There are multiple accounts of, of all of these events in her life. And in all of them, they say that she first turns to the patriarch, that is the Byzantine patriarch in Jerusalem, and asks him for a relic of the cross. And she sends out her envoys. And they go and they have letters from the bishops uh, that are um, in the area of Poitiers from various family members who are now, they too have been caught in battle, but are now in the Byzantine court. So she's sending all kinds of sort of bona fides, and she doesn't get what she wants. Uh, In all accounts, her envoys are shown relic of the cross in Jerusalem, but they don't get one. They get all kinds of other things that are usually incredibly frustratingly referred to as relics of unspecified saints in all of the in all of the textual accounts which just leaves you pounding on the page going what what who the miscellaneous <laughs> so she doesn't do this but she, i mean she doesn't succeed but the interesting thing is that that's where she goes first she doesn't go to constantinople 
She goes there only um, after it's really clear that no, the patriarch isn't going to give her one. So she turns then and she writes not to Justin, uh, the emperor, but to the empress, Sophia. And she, in the letter that we have, the multiple letters that we have, the request is framed as from one queen to another, mm. uh, which is really interesting. And it calls upon Helena as an example. Mm-hmm. So here we have layers and layers of, of probably inaccurate um, histories, but it shows the kind of power that these had as soon as the sixth century. Um, this is really rapid. And sure enough, um, all it takes is one ask and she gets, and then things get really dramatic. So a note for the audience that Sophia, the Empress of Justin II, was, as far as I can tell, the most powerful empress in Byzantine history so far, even more so than Theodora. Um, So in terms of her sheer involvement in the running of the government and her presence in Constantinople and so forth, she tends to get overshadowed by Theodora because of the kinds of sources that we have for her. Uh, both visual and textual, but my estimation is that Sophia was really uh, co-ruler with Justin when it when it comes to running the empire. Uh, but anyway, and she could get things done, right? Uh, Radigan's petition is granted, right? Yes. And, and and so her people come back with a. Well, what was it placed in? What what is so? If you're going to you know send. Uh, so almost diplomatic religious mission to Gaul from Constantinople to convey a, a fragment of the true cross. What do you put it in? Well, you've got it going the wrong way. So from Constantinople to, to Poitiers, we have some sort of an idea because Justin, we have what is called the cross of Justin II that he sent maybe five years before to the new Bishop of Rome. And it is kept in the Vatican Museum today and is a solid gold cross that is about a foot high. So it is a massive uh, piece Mm. that is completely begemmed and bejeweled. Um, And at the very center has, and this is probably a point that I should make now because I did not make it before. We're not talking about giant hunks of wood. We're not talking about door-sized plaques. We're talking about one-eighth of a toothpick, for example. Um, Tiny, tiny, tiny slivers of wood. Often the stamps or the, the wax that affix them to something almost completely obscures them. Yeah. But, um, that example is probably very close to what Radagund would have received. It would have been smaller, perhaps, but something like that. Um, we don't have a sense of the time that elapsed between the ask and the get, um, but it's also quite possible. Um, we certainly know it to be a fact later in the Byzantine Empire that there are reliquaries ready to go. So that when you decide to send a relic out, um, you can put it, you choose a reliquary and you put it in one and off it goes. Wow. Yeah, no, I hadn't thought of that, but it makes sense. Right. That the court would have these ready. Yeah, right, right, right. Or you could send them. We do have examples in which they are just sent affixed to a letter. So once it reaches Poitiers, what is the life story of the cross there? Well, as I said, this is when things get really interesting and we have to back up for a bit because the more important, the more powerful that Radagon became, the more pissed off the bishop of Poitiers became the all politics is local and it always has been and this is certainly true for Poitiers and it's certainly true for the economy of pilgrimage if you think of 
why you would have a relic, there are really two reasons. One is for devotional, spiritual piety and the power that that gives you, um, almost the guarantee that it offers. The other is for its economic value in terms of pilgrimage. And we see this in the West, the Western medieval world, where reliquaries are displayed, but not touched. In the Eastern Roman world, reliquaries are touched and handled. Um, so there are differences in the two, but certainly in Poitiers, the center of um, religious economics is the pilgrimage to see the relics and touch the, and well, to venerate the relics of St. Hilary. And though that is under the care and benefits the purse of the Bishop of Poitiers. So all of a sudden you have a royal nun who has an imperially gifted relic of the true cross that is showing up in this incredible procession from Constantinople, which includes members of the Byzantine court. According to the descriptions, people are coming out, hymns are being composed. Um, there are other gifts that were given from the court. And instead of opening the city gates and welcoming the relic in, Maravaeus closes the gates, locks the gates, and goes off to his uh, summer villa, <laughs> leaving, leaving everybody just sort of standing there and right. the relic with no place to go. So what do you do when you have an imperial relic and you're stuck? Um, you, I, I suppose you could toss it over the wall, but that did not in fact happen. Um, they turned to um, a bishop of Tours, who later um, became much more than the bishop of Tours. This is Gregory of Tours, um, and was one of the um, many in the area who Radigan took under her wing and who owes a great deal of their success to Radigan and her patronage. So Radigan's envoys go off to Gregory of tour and say, ah, and uh, he comes and sort of stands in for the Bishop of Poitiers, opens the gates, lets the relic in, and it is installed in Radagund's chapel. Radagund puts it in a silver chasse, so like a casket, a small sort of trunk, and what's interesting about this is that this is precisely what the accounts state is the reliquary used in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So even though she mm. is getting her relic from Sophia in Constantinople, she's making it visually look like the one in Jerusalem. Right. So she's, she's got the best of all worlds here. Yeah, so I remembered a similar story uh, when I was on, on Lesbos. Um, there's a very famous convent there, um, St. Raphael. Uh, it's an Ottoman period, martyrs. Anyway, it, those are the saints whom it commemorates. Their relics are there. And it, it, was, it was at the time under the control. It was fairly recent. It started in the 60s or something. And it became hugely popular center for pilgrimage and was really raking in tons of cash, which the abbess, so for, and she, she kept it in these chests that she sat on, right? And the, this was pulling in more money, I think, than the bishopric. And there was some tension between the bishop and um, uh, I don't remember her name now because you know, it was like the bishop was like come on I mean you got to help out with some other things here you know she she would literally hand out little wads of cash from her 
from these chests that she had in her room. Anyway, and she threatened him that if, if he tried to lay his hands on the income stream, she would remove the monastery from his jurisdiction by going old calendar. Oh, right. Like, which is, you know, no, no implications for doctrine or anything like that. You're still Orthodox and all that, but there's a jurisdictional issue. And he's like, okay, right. okay. we don't want to do that. And, and I got the sense of reading your article that there's a similar kind of tension between uh, Radigund and the bishop. I think absolutely so. Um, and because Radigan's convent had been built outside the walls, but adjacent to the walls, it was, in fact, outside of Maravaeus's jurisdiction, technically. Um, there was no reason for him to be that peevish about it. Um, except for the fact that he was just apparently that kind of a guy. Um, but he, it, relations did not improve. The relic of the cross uh, once installed in Radigan's uh, convent became almost instantly associated with miracles. Um, it was curing people. It is said to raise people from the dead. Um, so... Radigan becomes um, more holy. Uh, the place becomes more famous. No one's going to see the bones of Hillary anymore. He's a local saint. Right. He's not. He's not really that important at this, you know, on this kind of a scale. Um, so Radigan just trumps the Bishop of Poitiers in almost every possible way, and. This continues until she dies. When she dies, the bishop goes in to take control, which is when we, it's, the, the drama does not end with Radigan's death. So then we have the uh, princesses who have been these teenagers that you mentioned before, yeah. who have been kept all cooped up in uh, the nunnery. Um, they wind up hiring um, mercenaries to beat, up the, to, to beat up the bishop and to keep him from, from uh, turning them out. And eventually the mercenaries hired by the bishop beat the mercenaries hired by the princesses who lock themselves into um, a room in the nunnery and are wielding the relic of the cross uh, as their sort of last gasp um, which of course doesn't work, but, um, yeah. Radigund was, yeah, she was an amazing woman. Yeah, and then Carol she Butler. became, of course, a saint yes. almost immediately. Yeah. Um, so did she capitalize on the Constantinopolitan connections at all? I mean, you said that she put it in a reliquary that evoked Jerusalem, but in her, you know, self-presentation and her, her, her presence in, in locally, was she citing Constantinople as one of the sources of her authority? Well, it's difficult to know what she was doing locally. What we do know is what she did um, through the letters that she's writing and through the poems that she is commissioning or being commissioned for her um, by Gregory of Tours, by Fortunatus, who later go on to be incredibly illustrious. Mm -hmm. um, so they position her as a ruler akin to Sophia. And the authenticity of the relic, the power of the relic, and the status of the relic is linked directly to its lineage, if you will, the fact that it came from Constantinople. Yeah, I mean, she's corresponding with the court and sending and receiving letters and those by themselves. I mean, having a letter from the you know court or the emperor or the empress, that by itself is a, you know, it's just a significant, it's not a relic, but it's an object of power and demonstrates your connections and so forth. Not many people have can show that kind of connection and clout. It's the only relic of the True Cross that I've been able to locate in that part of the world at that time. Right, yeah. Uh, much less one that comes with that kind of legitimacy. Yeah. And we should talk briefly about the issues of 
legitimacy and relic of the true cross. It's a piece of wood. So it's not that hard to get a piece of wood and say it's a relic of the cross. So one of the things that authenticates it is where you get it. And the degree to which you can substantiate, that's where it's from. Um, So this is what makes getting it from Jerusalem or Constantinople so important. Yeah, it's almost like in the modern art world or archaeology where right, with the provenance is so important. And just like today, we're having to you know, demonstrate not only provenance, but transmission from owner to owner or, or museum to museum. You know, and there needs to be this paperwork that accompanies all the objects in order to authenticate them. And it seems that there's a similar kind of process that happens with relics, precisely as you said, because a piece of wood can be you know, faked by anybody. And so it's so important to have the, the associated paraphernalia, right, that, that demonstrate that you got it from a legitimate source. In this case, I think correspondence would play a role, but also the reliquary, right? If you have it in a, in a foot tall cross of gold, uh, that, you know, and certainly in an early medieval context, that is authenticating by itself because that's, you know, a sign of wealth and power and connections and so forth, especially if it comes from Constantinople. Um, and, you know, there are other um, interesting, you know, so the, the Sutton Who burial and the silver plate mm-hmm. that was found there, which has these control stamps, the export stamps from the Eastern Empire. I think they're from the time of Anastasius or something on them. And it's this curious juxtaposition of this precious object with, you know, all these motifs on it and a bureaucratic stamp that's been clamped with tongs probably on it, like in a, in a way that today would be considered rather, you know, disrespectful of the actual art object. But in reality, it actually does give it, enhance its prestige and connections. It does. It did. It certainly did. And I would say that actually the Vatican still practices this. Um, I'm not sure that it enhances prestige or connection, um, particularly in terms of manuscripts, uh, where I'm sure you've seen, um, you know, depictions of an illuminated manuscript page that has a giant uh, Vatican library stamp right in the middle of somebody's face. Um, so that's one thing, and that is about ownership. And I think that 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 is a very powerful statement. But also the wax stamps that the Vatican puts on relics to authenticate them. I gave a talk um, many years ago at an institution, and I was teaching, and somehow there was this groundswell of, well, you're talking about the relic of the cross. My church has a relic of the cross, so I'll bring it. So by the time that I got ready to start my talk, um, I was surrounded by eight or nine different reliquaries that held relics of the true cross, which was both amazing and terrifying. I was fairly certain I was going to burst into flames, but... What was interesting about the collection of reliquaries, they were all modern, they were all 20th century, and they varied in size and in content and style. All of the relics in them, all of the wood, were barely visible. And in Mm. each case, the size of the wood was completely overshadowed by the size of the red wax stamp that authenticated the relic. Mm -hmm. And that is what was really important. Um, You could believe in the relic, but the reason you believed in the relic was because of the wax stamp. And I think that for Radegund and for many other in the Byzantine Ecumene that It is the Byzantine imprimatur, the Byzantine-produced reliquary that holds these relics that made them legitimate versus, say, a piece of wood that your brother Fred picked up at the market. Yeah. 
I want to talk a little bit about this um, kind of asymmetrical relationship between the reliquary and the relic. Um, and by the way, by reliquary, we mean basically any container in which a relic is placed. But in our period, these are often, um, you know, precious objects or made of precious materials, uh, you know, gold or whatever, or they're, they're shaped boxes. They're sometimes later, they look like little miniature churches, but it can also just be a cross that has a um, some kind of niche in it that you can, uh, you know, put something in, right? It's always struck me that this, this asymmetry between the object inside, which has holy value, but no intrinsic material value in terms of, you know, the worldly, you know, uh, standards, and the surrounding container, which is exactly the opposite. Both need the other. They do. You, you have to hold the relic in something, absolutely. But relics of the cross, because they are the sort of highest in, they, they are the couture of, of relics, um, they get the best reliquaries. Right. So if you have a hair of a monk or someone who is a local saint, it might just go in a, a piece of parchment or something. Right, um, pouch. It could be, yes, or it could be baked into clay so or put in oil. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it does depend. Um, and I would counter that they do have monetary value at this highest level because people will pay to come see them. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the authentication is another... Or the strategies of authentication is another part of this tradition that accompanies these relics, you know, throughout the Byzantine period. And shortly after the um, the decades that we've been talking about, right, when this great war breaks out between Rome and Persia, and the Persians conquer Jerusalem in 614, and they take away the cross, and they take it off to Tessaphon and, and Mesopotamia. And uh, we have accounts of it, of the taking and the return of the cross when Heraclius won. And if I remember correctly, it was placed in a sealed container, or at least this is what Heraclius's people were claiming after the war when he won, that, the, oh no, this is the cross, don't worry, because it's been placed in this sealed container. And it, it, as you can see, it hasn't been opened. And there's this whole ceremony where they open it and, oh, look, it's the cross and all of that. But we have other texts that talk about the taking of the cross into the Persian court. It's not in a sealed container. Yeah, we're never going to, you know, sort sort it out. But the the sort of anxiety to demonstrate authenticity through these kinds of, you know, seals and containers, and I think there's a a lock involved at some point, and the bishop has the key or something like this. That anxiety is very telling. Well. One of the queens at Tessaphon was Christian. Right. And so she often enters into these tales. Um, this is, I mean, it's fishy. The, the thing is gone for 14 years before he, he gets it back. And like you said, it's sealed. Um, and there seems to be a lot of disinformation being put out about this until it is fully brought back, at which point he realizes that, oh, wait a minute, we don't have to worry about the Persians anymore. Now we have to worry about the Arabs. And so he splits it again and takes half of it back to Constantinople. So again, we have this supposed emulation of what may have happened uh, with Helena. But we also have, because of this 13, 14 year interval, we have this opportunity for all of the non-Orthodox Eastern Christian confessions to get in on this story. Mm. So the Armenians in particular have all kinds of textual traditions about how they were servants in the court and how they were able to suss out 
where this cross was being kept. Most frequently, it's being kept in a barrel of wine. The reliquary. Wait, wait, wait. wait. I got to I got to stop you there. What's up with that? I don't know. I do not know. I think it may be because they want to remove it from the reliquary so that it takes away the Byzantine aspect, because then when they get it, they divide it Mm. and it goes to the Christian queen who then gives it to Heraclius. So Heraclius is, is not coming out of this looking good. But again, this is an Armenian tale. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other Armenian tales that substitute for Helena, an entirely fictional Byzantine empress, as finding the relic of the true cross and who just happens to be partially Armenian. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> so, so everyone sort of gets in on rewriting the story. And if it is in a Byzantine produced reliquary, it's much harder to rewrite it as being anything other than Byzantine. Yeah. So now that you mentioned it, you're you're right. The wife or one of the wives of uh, Shah Khusro II was Mm -hmm. Christian. I think her name was Shirin. Mm -hmm. And she was, oh, it was sort of belong to the church that we call Nestorian, I think. I'm not sure. Something like that. And I now remember that there are Eastern Christian sources that talk about how she would bring it out at banquets and receptions when she's with, you know, her Christian clients in the Sasanian kingdom and so forth. And And maybe that's where the barrel of wine comes in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And Heraclius has to you know, go through these whole the, this performance of authenticity and authentication with the bishop and the key and everything to convince everybody that this is the right this is the right one. Actually, recently uh, Constantine Zuckerman has published an article. Have you read this one on um, the chronology of the end of the Persian War? Yes. Yeah. Oh, because it. I mean, it, it's, it's a very complicated chronology to be sure. But I think his conclusion is that when um, Sharvaraj, the Persian general, returns the cross to Heraclius. He does so from Egypt before he's gone to Mesopotamia. Like he had no access to Mesopotamia. So who knows what he gave him? And Heraclius is like, yeah, sure. Right. And Heraclius puts it in a Byzantine reliquary and it then becomes authentic. Yeah. And so they take it to Constantinople. Now we're, we're almost out of time, but um, let's talk a little bit about what Byzantine emperors do with the true cross once it's in Constantinople after the seventh century. So how is it used by the court after that? Well, it's used in a variety of ways. Um, It's used, um, it seems to be sort of evenly divided between church and state, if you will, in that um, it is used in the liturgy, but it is also used uh, in terms of imperial military victories. It's taken into battle. Um, very frequently. It is uh, used at coronations. It is used at baptisms, um, but it's also used on major feast days, um, particularly the feast day of Constantine and Helena. Yeah, and I was intrigued. uh, You mentioned that it's also used to resolve disputes, especially political conflicts. So how does it work in that context? It is brought into the room, which has a name that I cannot remember right now, um, that um, in which the arguments are being held and um, the plaintiffs are required to swear on the cross. And isn't it sometimes also used in, in cases of civil war? Emperors would send, I don't remember, maybe it's not a case of the true cross here, but Emperors would send their own personal cross, what they wore, to the rebel as a guarantee of his safety if he stood down. Ooh, I do not know of this. Yeah, but I don't know that if it had a relic in it. See, now I'm, I'm, I don't want to project our discussion onto that event, but they right. did do that sometimes. No, I know that they took relic, reliquaries of the cross into battle. Uh, the Limburg Stavratiki uh, was one that was taken into battle. But, uh, and sometimes they were captured 
for example, and then ransomed back. But um, to my knowledge, no, that I don't know that that happened. Okay, right, right. Basically, out of time here, there's a lot more that we can discuss, and maybe we'll have a future conversation. But I think this worked very nicely because we had uh, we talked in depth about a particular story where the which had so many elements. I mean, Radigan's story has not only the history of relations between East and West, but the way in which the role that relics played in that, her, you know, local uh, power structure, her rivalries with the bishop, but also these cross-Mediterranean connections that that it drew in. Plus, at the same time, um, the, the concerns about the authentication of relics and the, the relative prestige that relics have, both the kinds of relics, but also where you get them. And it's such an interesting sort of matrix that holds together the whole former Roman Empire, right? Because by this point, the Western Empire has fallen and, and you know, Gaul is governed by the, the Merovingians. But nevertheless, these ties and, and links between, you know, the Atlantic and the Bosporus are still very active. And it, it's really interesting to see how the history of relics is still binding this whole region together like that. What I found particularly interesting with Radigan, what was really a wonderful thing for me to discover um, in working on her, was how Jerusalem remains the preferred site from which to get these relics. And that may be because they are closer to the events which they are from, but it may also be because it helps to distance the relic politically. So uh, that, um, yeah. you know, and it's something that we can't really figure out given the, given what we know right now, but it is a really interesting thing to think about. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And I, I keep thinking that after the seventh century, you know, Constantinople kind of hoards all of these top level, top tier relics, the crown of thorns and the lance and all of this and then the cross. And it becomes like, well, in the, in the mind of the Byzantines, right? The, 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 the most uh, important collection of relics in the world. And then, you know, it gets broken up and dispersed after the fourth crusade and is left with nothing, I think. Well, I think 1204 and the sack of Constantinople by the Latin armies of the Fourth Crusade absolutely underscores what you're saying, that yes, it is the object of desire um, when it comes to these sacred objects, which are looted. Yeah. And which seems as if that would not work. That if you try to loot a relic, you would it would not turn out well for you. But it seems to me that uh, Mike makes right, and that possession is in fact 100% of of the law, um, and a lot of them wind up in monasteries in Europe. Yeah. So no, it's you're right. Yeah. It's it's really interesting, and I I find that tracking Byzantine reliquaries and relics of the cross as they leave Byzantium tells us a lot more about Byzantium than it does about um, the places that receive them and the people that receive them. Yeah. Yeah. And the view the, of, of Byzantium that they had in the West, uh, you're exactly right. The, the overwhelmingly in the 13th century, what the Latins wanted to take from Constantinople was relics not classical statuary, not texts of classical authors, right? Which is what today we would want. No, they made a beeline for the relics. And the fascinating thing is that a number of our texts, our primary sources for the conquest of Constantinople, we read them as narratives, like, ah, this is the story of the conquest of Constantinople. But in reality, those narratives serve the purpose of authenticating the relics that the person who wrote the narrative brought back with him. And it's like, and it, yeah, the, the whole story is just basically to authenticate that, yes, I did steal this from the Pandocrator. You know, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's after 1204 that the practice develops and is okayed 
by the Vatican that if you put a tiny sliver of the true cross into a larger piece of wood, it then becomes in its entirety a relic of the true cross. So it is infinitely divisible. Right. It's like a PDF file. It's reproducible. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can have it. I can have it. No, and there's no loss to the person who gives it. And, and the test for um, authenticating relics is by fire. Oh. So that doesn't really help with no. relics of the cross. So, yes, mm. um, I, I think if Cyril was having a problem with how many relics of the cross there were in his time, it's a good thing. It was just in his time. All right, Lynn, thank you. This was a fascinating conversation. Um, thank you. As our audience can imagine, we can go on talking about this for a while and we might do so again but i think it's probably best to end on that note so thanks again for coming on it was a great pleasure thank you for having me i'd always be happy to come back and we could pick up where we left off <laughs>